We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. Grand. Who's been enjoying the Jubilee? Just here, the rest of them dodgy Republicans. Who's been enjoying the Jubilee? It's been good, isn't it? Such enthusiasm. Um, I've not sang the national anthem yet, so if we get a chance, we'll work it in there somewhere. Yeah? Particularly the third verse. Actually, I shouldn't say that because some of you will be looking that up. Something about rebellious Scots put to the sword. Very exciting. Right. <laughs> One rebellious Scot is shaking her head here. Um, <laughs> good. Um, have, you, have you seen that clip? There's been a clip of an older gentleman uh, with all these medals, and he's like the close protection officer of the Queen, and he's talked about being on a walk with her near Balmoral up in Scotland. And he says, you rarely come across some people, but he said, this American couple were coming along. We like Americans, bless them. Um, and they're walking along, and they bump into the Queen, and she, she talks to them, but they don't know who she is. <laughs> and, you know, they, they say, so, you know, the Queen saying, what, what are you doing? And the, the American gentleman's telling about their walking holiday and where they're going. And, of course, after a while, as is polite, he says, and where do you live? <laughs> and the Queen says, I've got a... I live in London, but I have a holiday home around here. <coughs> and uh, she says, uh, um, and he says, oh, have you been coming here long? She says, well, for most of my life, for 80 years. So she must have been, must have been relatively recently. So, and then you see the penny drops. He says, oh, you must have met the Queen. <coughs> At which point she turns uh, to the bodyguard and says, no, I haven't, but he has. <coughs> Before the bodyguard knows what's happening, the American has got his arm round him. He's given the Queen his camera <laughs> so he can take a photograph. And, uh, and he's saying to the bodyguard, you know, what's she like? And the, and the bodyguard had known her for a while, so he knew he could pull her legs. Well, she's a bit cantankerous, but she's got a great sense of humour. <laughs> Somehow they managed to get a photograph with the Queen in it as well. And off this couple walked. And, um, uh, and the Queen turned to the bodyguard and said, I would love to be a fly on the wall when they show those photographs. <laughs> um, the Bible talks about how we can entertain angels unaware. And we can miss out on things right in front of our face. Um, and, uh, and today, what I want to pick up um, and talk to you about is is something that has kind of been operating amongst us, a good thing, a good practice that's been operating amongst us. But if we're not careful, we can miss out on it altogether. And, uh, and that's why I've called the, this the baby in the bathwater. Um, this week is, is Pentecost week. Has anyone spotted that? I suddenly remembered, oh, it's Pentecost week. Oh, yeah, it's good. Uh, so I thought we ought, to have, we ought to have a little bit of a reading in a moment um, from Pentecost and the whole thing. Because everything I'm going to talk about today, and much of the stuff I've taken out because I knew we'd have time, um, all stems from that point, from that infilling of the Holy Spirit. Everything stems from that, from us 
as believers receiving the power of Jesus, that power that, that raised him from the dead, that we can be walking with the Holy Spirit in us and operating through us day by day. And in fact, if that's not happening, then we're, we're on a hiding to nothing. And so, in, in some senses, um, you know, uh, as we read, uh, I'm going to ask Rachel to come read uh, this section about the day of Pentecost to us. If we had tongues of fire appear on our heads right now, I'd be, that'd be done. I don't need to speak, because everything stems from that. So let's, let's, let's I don't know, I want to be stirred a bit, of, have a bit of excitement, and that maybe that God might fill us again and, uh, and renew our understanding, our experience of him. And we'll keep coming back to that. So, Rachel. I just want to say, for the record, I would recognize the queen. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I'm reading from Acts 2. So, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. Right, just pause there. Okay, so, hey, she did well with all those funny names, didn't she? <laughs> I'd planned to read it and I'd cut them all out, other than cretins. I want to say cretins. But, um, <clears throat> but now you've got, don't go anywhere, you've got another bit. Is it bending down? She's trying to get away. Right, an amazing thing. We see these things, they're all together in one place, and suddenly a violent rushing wind comes, and these tongues of fire, and they're filled with speaking in tongues, and, and people hear it, and stuff happens. But yet it looks strange. People look drunk. Uh, it makes an effect. Okay, then Peter gets up. We're not going to go through his sermon. It's a great sermon where he just kind of links everything together. And, um, and there's a reaction of people uh, when they hear his words. And I think partly it's not just what he says, but it's the fact that it's a God-empowered thing. So we go to verse 37. Okay. So when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Great stuff. Thank you, Rachel. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we need another Pentecost. Father God, we need your touch. We need your infilling. We need it on a daily basis. Father God, we want to see healing. We want to see people raised from the dead. We want to see the favor of all the people upon your people. Father God, will you fill us again? Will you give us an infilling of your Holy Spirit so that we might make a difference? Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, amen, amen. When um, in, in lockdown, um, we experienced lots of different things. We discovered Zoom. We discovered there's a lot of stuff we could do. But there were some things that you can't do through a screen. You can't hug someone. There's a certain level of, of reading people's uh, kind of expressions you can't do. You can do a lot of stuff. And as many of you know, uh, my organization, Faith Action, we were asked to advise the government on regulations in relation to places of worship and what should and shouldn't be allowed, which led me to have lots of conversations with lots of faith leaders and church leaders particularly. And I often found that I would be kind of wrestling with people about, well, why do you need to have your Sunday morning meeting? What, what's important? And it was hard for people to, to really express what it was they needed. And I started to think to myself, what have I missed? You know, we had certain relax, relaxing of, of, of regulations. We could meet in sixes. We could meet outside. We could do some of those things. But what was it that I missed about the Sunday morning? And I realized there's those, those close friends, those people I see on a regular basis, uh, who we'd make effort, we'd go on walks and that kind of thing. Some of us went on secret walks and happened to bump into people. Balthazar and I managed to bump into each other in the park at the same time, and the policemen were watching us. <laughs> we were walking, we walked like, like we'd just met each other for the first time. So we could do all those things. But what I realized is when, when I come on a Sunday morning, I kind of do a, a, a kind of radar sweep. I see some people that maybe I've, I don't see regularly or I don't see you know, outside of the meeting that often, but I do see them. And, and I, you know, I would still care for them. They're kind of like secondary order friends. I'd still try to look out for them. I'd, I'd sense how they're going, what's going on for them, let me help, that kind of thing. And there's those different layers of relationship that we have. And I think a lot of what happened in lockdown is our, our world's kind of shrunk a little bit and that reaching out stopped. We didn't have those kind of points of connection. And so today what we were talking about is shared life and how we, we take back some of that key ground for us. Many of you have been around uh, in this church or in house churches or new churches like this for many, many years. But you know, a lot of you have not. And I was talking to someone recently, they said, well, the term shared life is a bit old. Like, I don't think we should bother with that term. I, want, I like the term. I'm going to stick with the term. 
some of you know I wrote a very long piece of writing on it recently, so I'm very committed to the term. But you see, one thing we can do is, as we transition into different times, different technologies, different expressions, we can find ourselves throwing things out, some things we don't need to hang on to. Um, but that's why we've got to be careful about the baby in the bathwater. We don't want to throw the baby out. And this thing about shared life is really important. It's so important that my main fear today is I'm not going to be able to convey to you how important it is. So I'm praying that God's going to speak to you guys, even if I don't manage to. Let's have a little look here and see how we do. Right, so first of all, what is shared life? Well, here's a definition. I've tried to make this as big as possible, but we'll see how we do. I'm going to read it off the screen myself. Shared life is intentional. That's the first thing. It's not something that just happens, it's intentional. Shared life is the practice that arises from an active decision by a group of Christians, followers of Jesus, to live in relationship with each other beyond formal meetings or services. Shared life involves tangible, practical, committed, and beneficial relationships. Drawing from the pictures of everyday relationship in the Gospels and the New Testament, shared life involves a proximity and involvement reminiscent of extended family. The signs of which could be meals and possessions shared, confrontation, sharing of experience, as well as prayer, worship, and teaching. Shared life means there is someone to call at 3 a.m., there's someone to join me to rejoice when I rejoice and mourn when I mourn. Let's have a practical example. Where's Anne? Oh, there she is. This is, this is something I wrote a while ago for an external audience. Late May 2020, I stood outside my home with my eldest son and watched the ambulance pull away with my wife inside. Because of the COVID restrictions, I was not able to travel with Heidi, and this was very distressing. While this was taking place, my father, the church's senior minister, phoned Kudzai, a church member, and also a senior sister in A&E. Kudzai was off duty, having just completed a long shift. However, when Heidi was wheeled into the hospital, quite afraid and very much alone, Kudzai was there to meet her. There were ups and downs in this hospital trip, and when the staff decided that Heidi needed to be transferred into another hospital for a scan, they turned to Kudzai and asked, why are you with this patient? Kudzai replied, she's my family, and the matter was closed. Heidi is white and born in Northern Ireland, Kudzai is black and born in Southern Africa. They are not blood relatives, but they are part of a family of faith. In this, they have shared life together, poured over finances, been accountable and shared the trials of motherhood. When asked about their relationship, Kudzai's answer was not contrived. It was natural. This relationship is an example of shared life. It is amongst countless other stories I have come across and created a context for me to recognise the growing reality of shared life. Thank you, Anne. It's a good story. There's lots of other exciting things about that story, about God's intervention in hospital, but, boy, it's different. One of the terrible things we hear about lockdowns is that people had to be in hospital on their own. Um, 
And uh, because of the family of faith, that was not the experience that Heidi had. Here's another picture of shared life. It leads to change. We can be in the same space, like the marbles in the jar. We can all be rubbing along next to each other. It doesn't make any difference. But a picture of shared life is when we're like grapes in a jar and something fundamentally changes. Wine comes about. It's a good thing. Get some wine as well. So there are lots of different outworkings of shared life, and one of the problems I've got today is I can't, I can't create the whole picture for you, so we're going to pick on some things. And a couple of weeks ago, we heard John speak about bearing with one another and serving, and that, that kind of really relates to shared life as commitment. Um, but today, I'm going to touch on the precedent of shared life and, and shared life as resistance um, as a bit of an anchor in terms of where we're going to go. So firstly... Shared life. Relationship is so important to God that he splits himself in three so he can relate to himself in terms of the Trinity. It's so important that right from the start of things we have Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Relationship is so important to God that we read that he called that first, he called the disciples that first they might be with him. That importance of relationship being right at the core, even before they did anything, he wanted the company to be with him. And then we see, and these are just three little pictures here of relationship and why it's so important. We see Jesus' famous last words. Well, we've got a number of those you may be thinking of. Um, uh, Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. Into your hands I surrender my spirit. It is done. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Many of those are about relationship or the anguish of broken relationship. But the one I want to pick up on is this which is, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. Even as Jesus is dying, even as he's in his last moment, and a torturous death he is, his desire to restore and create relationship is right at the core. He turns to his disciple John, and, and effectively says, says to his own mother, Mary, this is your son. And from that time on, she went into his home and he looked after it. We just see that right through, there's this precedent of relationship that's really important. This whole area I find really interesting uh, and I want to come back to another point. But shared life as resistance. Well, resistance to what? The spirit of the age, a driven a destination of culture that is moving us towards worldliness of flesh, old man, Adam, whatever you want to call it, but really, it's about rampant individualism. My desire to do what I want, when I want. My rights as an individual, which are more important than all else. It's about my choice, my space, my freedom. And we get phrases like this. Don't tell me what to do. You're not my father. That's just, that's just a picture of the orphan spirit we see in society today. There's a, there's a writer called Will Willimon. It's a great name, isn't it? He talks about training pastors um, in the particular period of time we live. And he comes up with this phrase. He says, in today's society, the fulfillment of desire becomes elevated to the level of need. And need gets jacked up 
to the status of a right. You start laying that thought over things. You see again and again, I want this thing. Well, I need it. And if I need it, I have a right to have it. That's the, the kind of entitlement that we live in. And I, you know, I, I get to consider this for myself. I really need, I generally need custard. I feel a great need for custard. My wife doesn't see that need as much. There's not as much custard happening as I'd like there to be. I'm just watching Mira see how that translates into Bulgarian. <laughs> I need these trainers. I need this. I need this girlfriend or boyfriend. I need, you know, I need these grades. I need this university. I need, I need all these different things. But it's interesting how we, we, we start switching that term. Um, desire for need. And, uh, and then it becomes a right. That's an interesting thing. I need to be able to express myself in the way I want to express myself. So much I could go on about that, and I'm not going to, because I'm going to be very disciplined, because this is not my landing point today. But instead, we see shared life stands out as salt and light and leaven and a city on a hill. Individual rights don't work well with a functioning family, nor in shared life, nor in outworking of hospitality. Our shared life, particularly around our homes, is so powerful. Our homes can be lighthouses that pronounce to those around us that by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That's one of the things that John picked up last time, that whole thing about the sign, the witness to those outside the kingdom is that we love one another. There in John 13, 35. In, as Jesus walked the earth, um, it was a time when who he ate with or whose home he went to was really important. Even today's, in today's society, who we eat with and who we visit is very significant. And, and uh, it, in that sense, it should be submitted, like everything else in our lives should be submitted to, to God. It should, be about, it should be something we're asking him, God, who do we visit with? Who do we join with? Who do we connect with? Who do we break bread with? Who do we eat with? Who do we hang out with? Who do we have fun with? All these things you want to be uh, submit to him. There's a writer who talks about the differences between African society and Western society. It's a really interesting um, book. And he, he talks about this phenomenon. And many of us who've visited Africa will see this, that at night you're driving and you just keep seeing people walking in the middle of the night. Kind of walking. Where are they all going? In some parts of African society, there's this whole concept of the sponsor you visit your sponsor. There's someone you've decided, this person's going to be good for me. They're going to mentor me, but probably they're going to give me money. So I'm going to visit them. So you go out visiting these people. It's an interesting thing. You never visit down. You only visit up. When I was in Zimbabwe, you know, sometimes I, sometimes I do a really good thing. Normally I've not planned it. It's by accident. And I was in Zimbabwe, and uh, one of the guys there, Liz Way, that some of you will remember, invited me to go and stay with him in his home. And he lived in a township. So I stayed a couple of nights in this township. 
Um, I had quite a lot of fun. Uh, you could spot me. I was the only white guy there. I met some really fun characters. There was one old lady came up to me, and she, she kind of said something. I assume she was talking into Belly. And she said something to him, and he said something back. And then, then we bumped into her later on, and she, and she was talking again, obviously wanted to talk to me. And I said to Lidsway, what, what did she say? He said, oh, she said, today's her lucky day. I said, why is that? She said, because she's met you twice, and you're going to give her a dollar. <laughs> and I laughed. I said, well, in my country, we reward wit. And she said, she, she was very old and had very few teeth. And she said to me, let me come to your country because I will be a rich woman. So anyway, after this visit with Lizway, everywhere I went, um, I was quite young then. We've got Sam Dixon who's away at the moment, and he was probably similar to him. Uh, everywhere I went, the pastor said, this is Daniel, da, 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 or various different things. And he stayed in the township. And I'm like, I just, you know. It wasn't that bad, it wasn't, you know. But it was a thing everywhere. And it's only when I read this book years later, this whole thing about visiting, the status visiting, visiting down, was a big thing. In fact, I got promoted. When they introduced me to speak before I was Brother Daniel, I wasn't quite old enough to be Pastor Daniel, so I got promoted. They were working at it. I became Evangelist. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Evangelist Daniel. So visiting down is an interesting thing, and visiting with people. And yet we see that Jesus blows this right out of the water all the time. In this picture, I don't know if we can see it here. See if I get my pointer right. See here, this is from The Chosen. If any of you have watched The Chosen, you know this is a character. This is Matthew. He's a tax collector. And this is Mary, former prostitute. Jesus is not visiting up. He's about to go off to Matthew's house to eat with him. To go to eat, it's hard to describe what a tax collector meant in those times, but it was like a traitor. It's like someone who sided with the enemy, uh, unclean all kinds of ways. And Jesus was amongst those people. He was visiting. So who you go, who you have in your home and who you go to visit is a huge significance. Um, and, uh, and opening, when, when in Acts it talks about people going from house to house, being a demonstration of the kingdom, it's so important how we open our lives and how we connect with one another. <clears throat> in, terms of the, in terms of the previous slide about resistance, one of the things we see that Jesus is constantly coming against a religious spirit, or we call it the spirit of who's in and who's out. And if we think about today's society... There's a lot of in and out, isn't there? If you, you need to say the right thing, use the right label at the right point, the right time. If you don't get that right, you're out. There's a religious spirit upon our nation which has got nothing to do with spirituality. It's to do with who's in and who's out. And it's a cold place when you're out. You can see lots of things happening, how people are, you know kind of celebrities they're in and then they say something and they're out and there's all kinds of cultural wars going on around those things and that religious spirit is alive and well political correctness has its own in and out and that's one of the things that I think we're supposed to resist some are considered cool and popular and some are not but it's interesting that Jesus goes to the others 
all the time. In the Gospels, we see that, gospel, uh, that hospitality and food has great meaning. So <clears throat> let's pick up a bit about food. Food's a great leveler, isn't it? We all need food. Looking at some of you, I'm not sure if you do, though. Some of you are so, you know, cycler types, skinny types. I'm not sure if some of you do need food, but there you go. I'm assured that you do need food. Um, and in, in, for much of history, there was a kind of common eating together, even in the great halls. You know, I was reading a book, Bill Bryson's book, written a book on the home, and he says that the room that used to be the largest is now the smallest, the hallway. It used to be the largest room in a castle, that kind of thing. And everybody would be together, living together and eating together. Okay, you may, you know, the king might eat different things to, to, the, to the lowliest people, but there was a commonality of being together. And then you get that advert of that terrible thing. I think it was probably by the French. The restaurant. Restaurant is about, suddenly it's about the food. You know you can go to a restaurant and eat on your own. Before, eating was always about company. And so what do we do with restaurants? Well, we kind of mimic restaurants when we have dinner parties. And the focus is on the food. Now, I, 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 like, I like cooking uh, sometimes. Uh, some of you have had, you know, some of my good food. Some of you have had some of my bad food. You know, I like doing that. But I like sharing life more than that. And, and I think it's, you know, we've got lots of TV shows about, you know, having great dinner parties and that kind of thing. In fact, um, I read recently uh, John Tyson uh, has written a book and he talks about how the poor, when it comes to food, the poor are thinking, did I get enough? The middle class are thinking, did I like it? And the rich are thinking, was it aesthetically pleasing? These different attitudes to food and how we approach food. None of that seems to be about the company and the connecting. Dinner parties mimic all of this kind of focus on food. They're very different to the family meal, the glorious roast dinner that I'm sure many of you are going back to today. In my house, when I was growing up, the roast dinner is very important. But what was really important is when we had guests coming. Because sometimes if guests came from abroad, they didn't know what custard was. We're back to custard again. And my mother would describe custard. John, describe custard. It's, it's like a, a vanilla sauce. <clears throat> so... And, and often there'd be a collection of desserts. What people didn't know was the age of those different desserts. <coughs> and she said, well, there's trifle. And after a number of years, you'd realise people would come and they were living for this moment. So, you know, someone like Hilton or Richard Cole or different people would come and they'd, they'd start doing this. Point of the different desserts. But the best thing was, if you could get hold of, as a child, if you could get hold of the guest first and say, when she says, would you like custard or ice cream, say both. (laughs) Because if you said both, although there'd be a look of, you know, if looks could kill, she'd look at you, that'd be your card marked, but it meant that we as kids could ask for custard and ice cream. You don't get that in a restaurant. I've been in some very fancy restaurants, and sometimes they do serve custard. And I have had long conversations with very fancy um, 
a very fancy waiter saying, I don't want this dribble, I want a proper, you know, thing. And they're looking at me. You know, you can't put, you know, the, the custard amounts and ice cream, it doesn't, doesn't really work in those fancy restaurants. So, it's that family meal, that coming together, that's really important. We need a community, not of dinner parties, but of fish finger friends. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well... Now, some of you have been trying some of these statements out for a while, so apologies, you know, some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, no, he's been trying this out on me for a while. If, if we want to get together, if it means I've got a book three months in ahead to get you in for an evening so we can have a fancy dinner party, that doesn't feel like shared life. Lots of things can happen in three months. And I was trying to work this out a number of years ago, and I realised what I needed was... What my real desire was for fish finger friends. Now, I don't know how fish fingers... I know they're a bit posh now in some places, but generally, fish fingers for me are not posh. They are ordinary, slap it in the oven, out it comes. With our oven, it's a question whether it's frozen or not when you get to eat it. So, but it's, it's ordinary food. You sit there with the family and the kids. It's, you know, there's not fancy stuff out. It's ordinary sharing together. It's being part of family together. And I think that's what we need more of. We need more times where we are sharing family together, and that's really key. You see, if I can only see you every three months, how am I going to do those do unto one another verses that the Gospels are littered with? We have to have that proximity and that commonality of seeing each other. You know, I have another irritation with, with my time. You know, the term, oh, I need my time. Or date night. Now, I know I'm, not, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I can't stand that, oh, oh, date night. It's like, here's a ringed fence you cannot touch. You cannot touch this time because it is date night. You cannot touch because it is my time. It doesn't, doesn't quite ring true to me. Now, having said this, I was talking to Paul Haycraft about this a while ago, and he quickly turned onto Facebook and pointed out a picture of me and my wife, and Heidi had said, last minute date night. So it defeated my whole argument. But... <laughs> But do you get what I mean, that we have these things we block up and say, no, I, I can't interact with you here because this is, this is set in stone. Of course, it's important that people get together and do all that kind of thing. That's fine, just don't let me know about it. Yeah? But how do we, how do we let our lives get in? How do we know that we've got those connections, which means we can call on people at 3 o'clock in the morning? I've called on people at 3 o'clock in the morning. I do not think they were blessed. But they came anyway, yeah? And that's the kind of shared life we're talking about. I read recently about a family, uh, a gentleman, he was talking, his name is uh, Peterson, here we go. He tells the story of his friend Mario, with whom he'd been studying the Bible for four years before Mario became a Christian. The Bible studies reflected the fact that Mario was a Marxist intellectual who'd read all the leading Western philosophers a couple of years after his conversion, Jim and Mario were reminiscing. Do you know what really was, uh, what, what, do you know really was what made me decide to become a Christian? Mario asked. Peterson thought of all their Bible studies and philosophical discussions. Mario's reply took him by surprise. Remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on the way somewhere together, someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. As I sat there observing you, your wife and your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? 
When I realised that the answer was never, I concluded that I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. Peterson did remember the occasion. He remembered his children behaving badly <laughs> and his frustration at having to correct them in front of Mario. Yet Mario saw the grace of Christ binding the family together. It's interesting, isn't it? We can, we can try and get everything all right and perfect, but um, it's that openness, that, that togetherness that, that shines through. Sometimes it's good to have another uh, guest there as well. It stops you decapitating the children. You know, it's always... Um, so, so here we go. We got the, we've talked about the home, gathering people, connecting. We've talked about food. We've talked about family. Finally, fellowship. All of these things kind of incorporate fellowship and come together. I was interested recently, I've been reading through Acts and, and, and the letters. Does anybody know what the first thing that um, is said to Paul or Saul when he's converted, when he meets, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus? Um, the, the poor, poor chap is sent to go and see him and to pray for him. Anybody know? Someone's looking up now. So this is a guy. He's been there. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He encouraged them. He's got letters. He's been getting Christians thrown into prison. He's been getting them beaten up. He's been getting them killed. He miraculously meets with God on the road of Damascus. And this Christian, um, now I often get his name wrong, Anais, Anais, something like that. Anyway, he's sent to go and see him. And the first thing he says is, Brother Paul, or Brother Saul. The first thing he says is, you're part of my family. You're my brother. That's supernatural. He could, he could have rightly expected that Paul was going to, or Saul was going to have him killed. But the first thing he says is, brother, he includes him in the fellowship of believers. Very powerful. Very powerful indeed. And there's lots, there's lots more that we could say in terms of um, the uh, shared life and evangelism, things like that. We've not got time for that today. But I just want to take us to these things. These things about Pentecost. These are things I'm hungry for. I don't think I'm nostalgic for. I think I'm rightly hungry for. I'd like to see some tongues of fire. That'd be good. Healing people on the streets, or healing people anywhere, quite frankly. I'm up for a bit of that. Salvation, teaching and discipleship, the fellowship of believers, shared life. These are all things that I'm hungry for. I believe that God has planted in his people a secret technology to bring renewal to our world. I think that some of these outworkings, which have to be born of the Spirit, have got within them the renewal for today's society. See, an individual life where I do what I want to do when I want to do it will not work. And this has to be so counter to that. But you know what? If we're not careful, that individual feelings-led way can be alive and well within us as a body of people. And that's why we have to resist it. But part of the way we resist it is being like the grapes and rubbing up alongside each other, being able to confront, connect, 
and in those kind of ways. There's lots of other things that, uh, oh, there we go, that we can see Shared Life can do. But my, my desire today is that there starts to be a bit of a mind worm in you that starts saying, is there, is my, is my life, my church life, my Christian life, is it a little bit too comfortable? Does it resemble the church and Christians in Acts? Am I in danger of being part of a kind of nice Christian club? See, the thing about shared life, it's intentional. If you find yourself just hanging out with a bunch of people and getting on all right, that's a club. There's an intentional desire and decision to commit to one another. Maybe God's stirring at you. Maybe there's people you need to share life with. Maybe you need to be thinking about opening your home. I can tell you one thing that happens with opening your home or sharing your car or lending people your tools. Yeah, I know Andrew Tizard's looking at me meaningfully. He's still looking for a claw hammer, don't you? Yeah. Uh, sledgehammer. Is a, you know, it just get knocked off the edge of us and our stuff and that kind of thing. But hey, it's a better way to be. We could have the perfect dinner party, but I prefer to have that, that place where I can be entertaining Jesus in amongst the rest of you and, and to be living the fullness and getting a little bit of a hint, a foretaste of where things are supposed to be. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize this demonstration that you have for us. We recognize that you desired relationship so much that you always call people to you. And you challenged us that if we were to be witnesses of you, that we had to love one another. We recognize, Father God, that that as a byproduct of your infilling, there was a fellowship of the believers, that people went from home to home, connected joyfully, and they had good favor with those around. Father God, we're, we're keen to be that city on a hill, that light on a stand, that salt in society, making that difference, Lord God. So, Father God, we just invite you now. Speak to us, Lord God. Speak to our, to our habits, our preferences, our ways of doing things. And give us a hungering after sharing that life with you and with each other. Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK.